one commentator recently uh, said, he was addressing pastors specifically. <laughs> and um, so I listened. And uh, he said, this is what he said. He said, your congregation is saying, you are my shepherd, I am your sheep, lead me. Because right now, it's all performative preaching. Churches say healthy things grow, but weeds grow too. If you're a pastor, your job isn't to grow your church. It's to preach truth. That's it. Just please give us the truth. Wow, what an what a apropos statement for our day and age, right? Growth, I, you know, growth is a healthy desire. The, the gospel is obviously invitational. It's not that people don't want the church to grow. I don't think that's what he's saying. He's, he's speaking against the temptation to compromise truth for growth, right? Not, not at the expense of truth, you know, like focusing on Jesus in light of the full gospel, not just making him attractive and bending on issues in order not to offend people. If the truth of the gospel doesn't confront sensibilities, we're not preaching it rightly. And that's the God's honest truth. The message of Christ drives some people away and it brings some people in. And we have to understand that. The early church proclaimed Jesus pretty clearly and his, his power no matter what. But often what we find is that in our day and age that we try to sell the Christian faith, right? Celebrity pastors, flashy services, watering down the message, uh, an imbalance on more uh, palatable concepts, packaging Jesus in such a way as not to offend and making him only attractive, preaching grace and mercy and love, while avoiding the darker underbelly of humanity, understanding sin and, and our propensity towards pride and evil, which we see a lot of in the world. And I will be honest, it feels that God is dismantling a lot of this. You know, his patience seems to be running thin with having his name besmirched. You know, as a pastor, I get a lot of emails, a lot of articles emailed to me, and that, like I can't go throughout a day without getting one or two articles about the next sort of milk toast or, or abusive pastor or church being laid low. Now, I don't want churches to go away, and I certainly don't wish bad on anybody, but for goodness sakes, if we're, if we're going to compromise the gospel, you need to be taken out of the game. We should point people to Jesus, that's it, right? All he is and all we are in light of him, allowing him to do the rest. There is power in the name of Christ and the complete gospel message. It makes a difference. The gospel which says that we must mourn before we can celebrate, that we must experience darkness before we see light, that we must know sinfulness to be able to know salvation. Jesus didn't come just in grace, mercy, and love. That's not all he came for. He, he also came in judgment of sin. And in the end, Scripture tells us that his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. Jesus' message is power over sin and death to save people. And when one rejects that, the consequences are eternal separation from God and death. 
We have to acknowledge that. But everlasting life in resurrection power for those who accept his message. Missionary E.P. Scott was in India, ministering in India, and one day he found himself uh, surrounded by armed men. And spears, with spears pointed at him, uh, he took out his violin and he started playing and singing that familiar tune, that familiar hymn that we probably all know so well, all hail the power of Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall, bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Verse 2, seed, O seed of Israel's chosen race, now ransomed from the fall. Hail him who saves you by his grace and crown him Lord of all. Verse 3, let every tongue and every tribe responsive to his call. To him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. And as he, you know, as he sang, he had his eyes closed. And when he opened his, his eyes after that third verse, Uh, he was astonished to find out that spears had been dropped and men were crying. Power in Jesus' name. Things can happen. And this is the point of the proclamation Peter makes today in this next sermon we look at. Um, Turn with me to page 745 of your pew Bibles as we read Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. Page 745, Acts 4, starting in verse 1 and going through 14. And it begins like this. It says, The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people, and they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. But many who had heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Now I want to point out, when they say the number of men... That means male heads of the household. So there are other people that are added there too. The number is probably greater than 5,000. Verse 5, the next day the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas and John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them, and they began to question them, by what power... Or what name did you do this? In verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. He's quoting scripture there, right? Verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Oprah, listen. Verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. Now this series obviously looks at the early church proclamations, the sermons of the early church, 
and you know God's revealed word, inspired, useful for daily faith, providing us with a window to see how the early church shared the good news of the gospel and what it exactly was to them, right? And today's message comes shortly after the sermon that Peter proclaimed at Pentecost that we looked at last week. And we see that the disciples are demonstrating the power of God through signs and wonders. The church has continued to grow as a result of their, their, their proclamations. And know that in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John healed this man who had been unable to walk and that was drawing a lot of attention. And so in chapter 4, the leaders of the temple come and they arrest them. However, office hours were over for the day. You know, it was, it was, it was late. So they imprison them for the night and uh, they're going to deal with them in the morning. So the next day they bring them before the high priest and Sanhedrin for questioning. Now you may not know what the Sanhedrin is. But the Sanhedrin was the 71-member ruling body of Sadducees in Jerusalem, but led by the high priest. And although the position of high priest was supposed to be for life, during the time of Roman occupation, high priests were regularly removed from their positions because the Romans, by changing people out, could exert more control over them. Nevertheless... Because of the powerful families from which these guys came, they remained very influential still in the Sanhedrin. And it's to this body of ultimate power of Judaism to which Peter courageously speaks. And he answers their questions, turning it into a moment to proclaim Christ to them. The Sadducees of the first century, though, uh, represented a certain viewpoint right? And they, they specifically rejected oral traditions of the Pharisees. They, they considered only the written Torah, uh, the Pentateuch as valid. Uh, this is the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament as we call it. And uh, they considered concepts of demons and angels and immortality and resurrection as innovations. They didn't believe really that there was life beyond this life. It's kind of strange to think about if you, th if you think about it, right? So they were people with a no future hope. Now think about living your life with no future hope. How that would affect how you interact with people, what you put your mind to and your heart to, and how you view life and other people and all that kind of stuff. So it's very, that a very, their theology very much affects them, right? And therefore that affects other people. But more important than their theology was their political orientation. They were largely from aristocracy, and they were accommodationists when it, with regard to the Roman occupation. They possessed considerable economic interests. Uh, their concern was peace with Rome, right? Preserving, preserving the status quo and protecting their holdings. That's what, that's what their concern was. And in return, Rome accorded the Sadducees, you know, considerable power, invariably appointing the high priest, you know, from people they liked and the, the most powerful political figure of Judaism, this high priest, that, that position. And the prime concern of Sadducean aristocracy, of whom the high priest was the head, was preservation of order, right? Avoidance of any confrontation or conflict with Rome. 
And so the Sadducees' annoyance at Peter and John's witness to the resurrection was not so much theological as it was political. So you look at the wording in verse 2, and it doesn't say they were proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. It says, rather, they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. All right? There's a little bit of a difference. So they were preaching that the resurrected Christ, the resurrected Jesus, has power to bring wholeness to people. In him, there is power not only in this life to heal somebody, but in future resurrection and eternal life of anyone who believes in him. And that speaks of something beyond this life and beyond this government and beyond your holdings, beyond your economic interest, beyond all this garbage that we have to deal with over and over again every single day of our lives. It, it speaks about something that goes way beyond anything that we think about daily, which makes a big difference in how you view life and how you view other people and how you operate. It really does. So they were concepts with messianic overtones, which to the Jews meant revolt. The overthrow of foreign overlords of Rome and the restoration of the Davidic kingdom. And there had been such movements before, right? Rome had put them down as well. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 5, it tells us of two such uprisings in the past. It says this, some time ago, Theodos appeared claiming to be somebody and about 400 men rallied to him and he was killed by and all his followers were dispersed and it all came to nothing and then verse 37 after him uh, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt and he too was killed and all his followers were scattered there done done with that got those two guys out of the way right but there would be more in fact, the worst fears of the Sadducees did come to, to fruition later when war broke out with Rome in AD 66 with terrible consequences. And we've talked about this a little bit, but over 600,000 Jews are killed, thousands are taken captive, and it ends in the destruction of the temple in AD 70. The Roman army led by the, temp the uh, emperor Titus and with Tiberius Julius Alexander as his second in command, besieged and conquered Jerusalem, which had been controlled by Judean rebel factions since the riots began in AD 66. And Josephus, a Jewish historian of that time, claims that over 1.1 million people died during this up-close sort of bloody battle of spear and sword. It's not like smart bombs, you know, from, you know, halfway across the world. These guys had to get into it with each other, right? And Jesus, if you remember, had predicted this, weeping over Jerusalem 70 years earlier when he had ridden into the, the city on the back of the donkey. So right now, with large crowds surrounding Peter and John, their fears were aroused for something like that. Peter's sermon alarmed them. Resurrection, author of life, concepts like a new Moses, revolutionary ideas. The movement must be nipped in the bud. It must be stopped, right? And it's not necessarily that the Sanhedrin really cared about people that much or that they could even fathom such an uh, an obliteration of Jerusalem and the temple and all that stuff in the, in the future. 
but they did want to preserve their way of life, their assets. They were political opportunists. Religion was a tool to this end. Now, Caiaphas, who is mentioned here in this passage, was instrumental in the death of Jesus, if you remember, since Jesus posed such a threat to the stability of the time. His impromptu, Christ's impromptu coronation ceremony, when he entered Jerusalem on the back of that donkey, drew way too much attention. People were way too happy about this, and he couldn't have that. And at the time of Jesus' arrest in John chapter 11, it says this about Caiaphas. It says, then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. You can hear his political wranglings right there. John 18, it says, they bound him, bound Jesus, and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Jesus was simply expendable to protect his interests with Rome. Not recognizing that God had ridden in to the city on the back of a donkey just weeks before, not listening to the words or seeing the signs that the Christ, the final Passover lamb slain for all peoples was here, that God himself had visited them that day in the person of Jesus Christ. His focus therefore, was not on what God was doing, right? The Sadducean focus was not the focus on what God was doing, but on what religion could do to protect themselves and their interests. When faith ceases to become risky and courageous, like Peter shows us, in following God as he leads, cozying itself up, to worldly politics, we have lost our telos. We have lost our way. Republicans and Democrats alike pay attention to that statement. I don't think God is either a Republican or a Democrat. We may view the Sadducees as very religious people as we read the Bible, but in all honesty, they were people who had not accepted the entire word of God. They didn't. They only accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, right? Making religion to be a political tool to further personal gain. They seem to want peace, right? But peace with Rome, not God's ultimate peace for all of humanity. We remember that Jesus said back in Luke 15, or Luke chapter 12, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Now, division because the world is at odds with God. Ultimately, Christ does bring peace. Christ brings peace to my heart, but he also will bring peace absolutely in the future. But right now, division because the world is at odds with God's direction and standards and everything else. There will not be ultimate peace until Christ reigns fully on this earth again. And that is because sin and peace cannot walk hand in hand. They are not related. Theirs was a religion of expediency and personal gain. Think of the church today. 
largely, lar- large segments of the church giving up on Scripture, not holding to, to them fully, using its influence for personal gain, accommodating culture to keep the peace, so to speak. When in actuality we are called to preach the gospel which divides to, bone, to joint and marrow like Hebrews 4.12 tells us. Amen. In compromising, we lose sight of our way. We are no longer working for God, but for self, and in doing that, we are working against God. We think we're better, right? Beyond influence of political affiliation, and pride has seeped in, right? We point to people like the, in the scriptures like the Sadducees or the Pharisees, and we say, I can't believe they acted like that. I can't believe they thought like that. I can't believe they did that. All the while, we often cozy ourselves up to certain political agendas in compromising the gospel of Christ. The Sanhedrin summoned Peter and John, right? They want to bring them in for questioning. It's the modern equivalent, if you think about it, of two Delco uneducated construction workers, you know, called before the U.S. Congress, all these people with great, incredible law degrees, you know, from very prestigious universities. And they asked Peter and John, and a very important question, by what power, by what name did you do this? And that question is the setup for Peter's proclamation. And Peter doesn't answer the question immediately, right? He, instead, he turns their position up to, upside down on them, painting, uh, painting them as being opposed to doing a good deed for uh, one little crippled man in the world. And then he informs them that the miracle was done by the power of Jesus' name. And at that moment, you could probably have heard a pin drop because two uneducated construction workers just schooled Congress, Right? They had, they had nothing to say. But Peter doesn't stop there. He goes further. You've got to understand his, his courage in this moment. He declares, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, that is a remarkable claim to make to a bunch of religious experts sitting in front of you they would have all known Isaiah 43, 11, which says, I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. Yet Peter says salvation is found only in the name of Jesus, so he is focusing on the power of God in Christ. He's saying, Caiaphas and all the rest of you sitting before me, the name, the same Jesus who rode into town, proclaimed as king by all the people out there at Passover was God incarnate sitting on the back of a donkey. He alone saves you and he, he alone saves anyone else out there. He is God and you crucified him. The Sanhedrin, the highest court of justice and the supreme council in ancient Judaism trusted in intellect, in position, in politics, and in their aristocracy. They were the man, so to speak. And that is no different for us to follow celebrity pastors and politicians and the educated and the powerful instead of God into the world.
two ordinary unschooled men facing down the dragon at their own risk, speaking truth to blind establishment. That's what this is. Peter's very presence in front of the Sanhedrin demonstrates the truth of his claim. The Sanhedrin was astonished, realizing that John and Peter were uneducated common dudes, common guys. Tim Keller shows the presence of these ordinary men proclaiming Jesus to religious leaders demonstrates the power of the gospel when he writes, but the reason they were astonished was because they didn't grasp the gospel. They didn't get it. The gospel is that one's past record's never pristine. It's all full of selfishness and pride and sin, he says, and that therefore ordinary men can be saved, chosen, and gifted by God for service. Peter and John have this confidence because they received their position with God and their position in his servants all by grace. They pointed to Jesus. They simply pointed to Jesus and the ordinary revealed God's glory. So the question as to the name behind their preaching was one of accreditation and authorization. And Peter couldn't let that go by, right? The lame man was simply healed by the name of Jesus. If the Sanhedrin wanted to know about that name, then he was certainly going to tell them. So Peter gave them a sermon. (laughs) And in fulfillment of Jesus' promise, he's given a special endowment of the Holy Spirit to be able to boldly bear witness before them. And the crux of the sermon's a play on the Greek word sozo, which means both physical salvation and the sense of healing, but it also means the spiritual eschatological sense of salvation for further future uh, salvation, eternal salvation. The physical salvation of the lame man through the name of Jesus points to the far greater salvation which comes to all who call upon him in faith. A future hope that they didn't have in Christ, which makes a huge difference in how you view life and how you view all the workings of life right now. Peter basically said this name, this name isn't at all destructive. It brings wholeness. Underlining his point by saying, be very sure of this, you and everyone else in Israel, that Jesus saves. Peter's appeal is implicit in his proclamation. If there's a salvation in no other name, then obviously one must make a commitment to that sole name which brings salvation. But the appeal's even stronger because Peter switched to the first person at the end of of that verse by which we must be saved, right? Everybody right in the room right there. And that is a direct appeal to the Sanhedrin. Very bold. You remember, Peter wasn't always so bold. But he was very bold. He's come full circle, hasn't he? There's there's something in Peter that allows him to be so courageous. And we know that that's the Holy Spirit. So they asked for the name in whom his, his authority rested, and he answered the powerful name of Jesus, the exact one that they had rejected. And so the ultimate verdict rested with them, didn't it? Would they continue 
to reject the one whom God placed as the final stone for his people. The the only name under heaven by which they could be saved, they could find their own salvation, and the verdict would rest in their personal decision right then. And it's interesting, isn't it? If you think about it, those who express the clearest truth are often people that we would deem least likely to have the ability to do so. Isn't that true? The educated, the uneducated, and the ordinary speaking gospel truth, presenting the verdict, and letting Jesus manage the results, even if it means difficulty for them. So I just leave you with a simple question today. What can Jesus do through you, an ordinary person who doesn't have all the answers, right, but simply preaches the clear gospel of Christ to those around you? What can God do through you? And the other question is this. Are you ready for the consequences? Are the consequences... are? Are the consequences, does the, does the future outweigh the consequences, right? Are you ready for the consequences, which lie somewhere between people coming to Jesus, amen to that, or them hating you for your faith? Friends and family and coworkers and possibly losing your job because you preach Christ. Are you ready for that? And is this story that important that you lose something? Obviously, I think it is.